On June the 3rd, two Minneapolis activist organizations, Black Visions Collective and Reclaim the Block, held a news conference. Here's Black Visions Collective Director Candace Montgomery. We have been told that we cannot possibly be safe without the police. The truth is, we cannot be safe with the police. This week, we have watched videos of the police murders of George Floyd. We have also lost Breonna Taylor and Tony McDade. We have seen MPD firing tear gas and rubber bullets into crowds of young black and brown people. If we have had any doubt left, the last week has shown what the police are really here to do. It's time to defund and dismantle the police department. This call to defund and dismantle police is being echoed by protesters across the country. It's not a new idea, but it's gaining support. Here's Candace Montgomery again. In the conversations that we are having daily with council members, they are moving with us. They are trying to move with us and we are supporting them and actually figuring out how to do so. Um, but I think it's really likely. Um, I actually spent much of this morning crying, if I'm gonna be honest with everyone, because I think for the first time, after organizing for over a decade as an abolitionist, that I actually have a very clear vision and see that visioning happening. And what we are asking of our community is to, to step into that vision with us, to courageously step into that vision because this is what is best for our health and for our safety long-term. I'm Sarah McConnell, and today on With Good Reason, we explore what a society without police might look like. Each time a police officer kills another Black person in this country, it's followed by calls for reform. But Alex Vitale argues it's not enough to reform the police. He says we have to defund them. Vitale is a professor of sociology and coordinator of the Policing and Social Justice Project at Brooklyn College. He's also author of the book, The End of Policing. Alex, you argue that police reform won't work. What do you mean by police reform? Isn't that the very thing everyone's agitating for? You know, when this round of protests began originally five years ago, after the police murder of Eric Garner and Mike Brown and Tamir Rice and so many others, we were told, don't worry, don't worry, we're going to fix policing. We're going to reform policing with a whole set of procedural reforms the Obama administration issued this 21st century task force on policing that laid out all these great reforms. And in fact, Minneapolis was kind of a star. They, they adopted a huge number of these reforms. Things like they were going to give the officers implicit bias training and mindfulness training. They were going to set up all kinds of police community encounter meetings. They're, they implemented body cameras. They changed their use of force policy in little ways. And we were told that this would help restore the public's trust in the police. But it's made no difference. These reforms fail to get at the real problems in American policing. They're superficial, and they're mostly designed to provide political cover to allow police to keep doing what they always do. I, at work have been through similar kinds of training where you are sort of given online problem sets and choose A through D, et cetera, and you certify, you completed the training, et cetera. I know how superficial, but maybe a symbolic step those are. What if these efforts at bias training and community dialoguing and such were deeper and better? Yeah, well, see, this assumes, right, that the problem of race in American policing is at the level of the decision-making of individual officers. And this is because there's been so much focus on this relatively small number of horrific, high-profile incidents. But the problems in American policing are in the overuse of policing to solve every social problem under the sun, especially in poor communities and communities of color. And so when, when, we, when we have these training sessions, it's like, well, you need to look into your own heart and try to figure out, you know, if that's causing you to make bad decisions. But there's no interrogation of why we are using police to address the 
opioid crisis, why we're using police to fix failed schools, why we're using police to be in charge of mental health crisis situations. The, the violence, the problems, the discourtesy are inherent in the mission. So that when, when we tell police to wage a war on drugs and a war on crime and a war on gangs and a war on immigrants and a war on terror, and then we tell them, but be friendly and nice about it, that just doesn't work. So instead of wasting a lot of money on training that's never shown any real results, we should in, instead look to dial back that reliance on policing. I mean, it's great if people want to explore the historical racism in American policing, but that doesn't change their behavior. So when you call for defunding police, are you saying dial back funding? Have some police, but use some of the growth in police department funding instead for community programs? So in the immediate moment, Uh, cities all across the country are facing significant budget shortfalls. And so it's obvious that we need to cut police budgets. And in New York, uh, the Policing and Social Justice Project that I coordinate has proposed a billion dollar reduction phased in over four or five years. And that would only take us back to where we were five years ago. We've seen this massive expansion in budgets. We can start by doing that, and then we need to ask some tougher questions. Do we really need to spend this money on police and schools, or would that money be better spent hiring more counselors, creating more high-quality after-school programs, implementing restorative justice programs? Do we really need to have the police be the primary mechanism for managing drug problems, uh, commercial sex work, et cetera, There are alternatives to those things. We need to look to shut down these vice units, shut down narcotics units, and redirect that money to communities in ways that build up those communities instead of putting lots of people in prison. I read that 30% of the Minneapolis city budget goes to the police department. Is that unusual? No, it's not. Some cities, it's over 40%, such as Oakland, California. Uh, This is not unusual. You would think most of the money would be for social services, cleaning, and schools. Yes. Well, what's happened is is that there's this bipartisan consensus now that has embraced austerity politics. This idea that local places have no choice but to eviscerate social services and the social safety net in order to try to compete in the global economy and to invest what little money they have in subsidizing the already most successful parts of the economy. And this has created massive inequality, economic precarity for huge numbers of people. It is producing mass homelessness, mental illness, mass under and unemployment. And then we turn those problems over to the police to manage. And as those problems have gotten worse, more police are being sent to deal with them. And we've got to break this cycle of assuming the only possible solution to these problems is ever more intensive and invasive policing. So instead of the system we have right now, when we've been throwing more money at police departments generally, what would you do with that money in communities? So what I suggest is that, you know, communities need to do needs assessments. What are the real public safety challenges that they're facing that they have turned over to police and start to develop what they would really like to have as an alternative to resolve those problems? So is it a problem of youth violence, of opioid overdoses, of uh, homelessness and mentally ill people wandering the streets? So depending on what those problems are, we need targeted interventions to address those. Perhaps it's community-based anti-violence interventionists, so-called credible messenger uh, strategy. Perhaps it's the development of supportive housing to help folks who have become perceived as a source of disorder in the community. Maybe we need to look at schemes to legalize drugs, legalize sex work, so that it moves off the streets and from unregulated to a more regulated status. There are 
interventions for each of these problems. And so we need to be specific. We don't need to say, well, we just need midnight basketball or we need a generalized anti-poverty program. We need those targeted interventions to help stabilize the situation while we work on those longer-term problems of inequality. One alternative you write about is restorative justice. What does that look like in practice? Well, that's most widely used in the context of schools right now in the United States. Restorative justice is about trying to think about justice not as punishment and incarceration, but instead to understand that there are forces that are driving harmful behavior. And that if we don't want that harmful behavior to continue, we need to get to the root of it. And that means bringing the person who's caused harm, possibly the person who's been harmed, and the community together to try to get to the root of the problem. Is a young person acting out in class and disturbing the learning environment because they're facing abuse at home, because they don't have enough food to eat and they're distracted? Is it because they have a learning problem that's not been properly diagnosed? Let's get to the root of that instead of calling the school police officer and putting them in the criminal justice system. What about people who are calling for police abolitionism? What is police abolitionism? You know, there are different strains of thought about this. Some people have a very radical, social transformative idea that we need to think about how to create a different kind of society that doesn't produce the kind of crime and violence that our society produces, and that as we do that, we don't need the state to have this massive coercive uh, apparatus. And it is true that you know the history of American policing is a history of managing the consequences of a lot of exploitation colonialism, slavery, you know, economic inequality, industrialization. And so anytime we see a problem turned over to police to manage, that should be a red flag to us, that there's a political economic problem underneath that that the police are being asked to cover up for, in a sense. For me, if I could just say, for me, it does not mean tomorrow someone flips a switch and there are no police. What it means is that we have to be very deep in our interrogation of why are we using police in any given situation. Try to develop those alternatives and pare back that over-reliance on policing as much as we possibly can. You know, after the alt-right, the armed neo-Nazis descended on Charlottesville in 2017, I noticed that one of the reforms seemed to be on the part of the city to not police so heavily or at all the highways. Yeah, there's a tremendous amount of evidence that shows that most highway traffic stops serve no legitimate public safety purpose, especially the pretextual stops, which are those stops that they claim there was some traffic violation, but what they're really doing is they're looking for drugs or they're hoping to find some other violation. These uh, interactions just undermine public confidence, are attacks on poor people, and really uh, just advance a totally toxic and unjust war on drugs. So just this idea, even simple steps like police less. Yes, for many things, that's all we need. It's just a reduction in policing. But For many things, there are legitimate problems that need to be addressed. There are problems of violence in the home, in the community, in the schools. It just turns out policing is not really the most effective or just way to deal with them, and we need to look for those alternatives. You know, often members of the African-American community caught living in high drug areas are citizens who are appealing for police intervention. And arguing and asking for arrests of the drug dealers causing so much disruption in their neighborhoods. What do you make of that? It's absolutely true. I mean, people are desperate in some areas that they feel abandoned. And they've been told for the last 40 years that the only tool they can get from government to help them address those problems is more police. 
whether it's community policing or some narcotics task force or whatever it is, they're told you can have police or you can have nothing. And that is at the root of this problem. When are we going to actually get real solutions to the drug problem? You know, we've been putting literally millions of Americans in prison for drugs, and anybody can get any kind of drugs they want whenever they want them. My friend Peter Moskos was a police officer in Baltimore, and he wrote a book about his experience, and he said, no matter how many drug arrests we made, no one went five minutes without drugs. <laughs> it just made absolutely no difference. No lives were saved. No one was prevented from getting drugs. But millions of people had their lives ruined by being put in the criminal justice system. A lot of communities trying to address the um, mistrust of the police and the overstepping of police departments have gone to citizen review boards and trying to give more power and control to citizen review boards over police. Does that work? Unfortunately, it doesn't seem to. Civilian complaint review boards or other kind of civilian oversight mechanisms have not made any difference in American policing because they never have the power to get at the real question. A civilian oversight board can't get the police out of the schools and can't end the war on drugs. They can tinker around with policies and procedures, but ultimately these are political questions. And what we need, I think, is some political accountability from those politicians who keep turning every problem over to the police to manage, rather than getting to the real root of the issue. As cities across America are struggling with and eager to change the equation, what would you fundamentally advise city politicians and leaders to do about their city police departments? to sit down with local communities and do a real assessment about what their public safety challenges are and to figure out how to deal with them without relying on police as much as they possibly can. I think that's really the only way we're gonna get out of this mess. You know, it's, it's important to keep in mind that policing has not always looked like this. We did not have police in every realm of our daily lives the way we do now. We can dial this back. It does not have to be this way. And if we, we look around the world, we see that policing is not this way in so many places. You know, Portugal has, has decriminalized all drugs. New Zealand has legalized sex work. In the UK, police have very little to do with mental health crisis calls. School policing is largely unheard of in Europe. So these are not, you know, crazy ideas. We can dial this back. Are there cities in America that you think have gotten it right? No, <laughs> no. There are cities that have maybe started to figure out one piece here or there, reduce the school policing program, try to look differently at the drug problem, support legal, legalization of marijuana. You know, there are elements of this, but not nearly at the scale that's needed. The conduct we've seen on the streets this week by American police are really making our argument for us. They are out of control. They're clearly completely uninterested in changing the way they do business. And we have to take their toys away and reduce the scope of their power. Otherwise, they're going to make our social problems dramatically worse. Don't you think if there's a movement toward defunding or reducing funding for police departments and taking away the scope and intensity and toys, as you say, that there'll be a militant reaction to that, maybe even a rise in lawless militias, as we've seen increasingly in protests. Well, I think we have to understand part of the rise of these extremist right-wing uh, white nationalist movements is also because there's a tremendous amount of precarity in white America. We've seen that just the collapse of, of rural economies, the collapse of infrastructure, the rise of you know the opioid crisis is an indication of this. In a way, those folks are hurting too, and their needs need to be met also not in the, in the racist and destructive ways that they're proposing, but in terms of you know, rethinking farm policy, 
rethinking infrastructure policy, uh, coming up with you know, a rural economic development program. So yes, we have to be aware of the threat that those forces pose, but investing in communities across the board and strengthening people's capacity to live independently with dignity, I think can only help the scenario. Well, Alex Vitale, thank you for sharing your insights with me. You're most welcome. Alex Vitale is a professor of sociology and coordinator of the Policing and Social Justice Project at Brooklyn College. He's the author of The End of Policing. Community policing is often held up as a positive solution for unjust policing and police violence against Black people. Justin Hansford is a professor of law and director of the Thurgood Marshall Civil Rights Center at Howard University. He says community policing is not a true solution, but a wolf in sheep's clothing. Justin, you've said that community policing is a wolf in sheep's clothing. What do you mean about that? Community policing is an approach to policing that argues that the way to go about creating a healthy community is to allow police to feel like they are going to be deeply engaged in community life in a way that will then make everybody warm and fuzzy and create a, create these great relationships. What we've seen over and over again is that what really happens is police go into communities with the mentality that they are soldiers in a battlefield and they turn that community into a battlefield and uh, they interact with people in a way that is going to result inevitably in what we saw with Mr. Lloyd and Breonna Taylor and so many others. So I think I think that the community policing approach is one that it, it was embraced by the Obama administration. Um, it was embraced by uh, many people who were, who sought to find a middle road in the aftermath of uh, the killing of Mike Brown. Uh, but it's ultimately a approach that is not going to survive. Do you think it's a good idea? It's just that nobody is executing it well that community policing in its ideal says the community and the police trust and care for one another, but you're saying we're not achieving that, right? No, the police have not trusted or cared for the Black community since their creation. They were invented in the United States to patrol plantations. Later on, plantations ended and it was Jim Crow segregation, and they took on the role of patrolling those segregated neighborhoods. Jim Crow segregation ended, and they they took on the role of patrolling the ghettos. At no point in that history was there a caring relationship between the black community and the police. There has been a caring relationship between the police and the white community. That's why the training idea is so misguided, because all of these police do know how to treat citizens with respect and kindness and caring. The same police officer who might uh, put his knee in the neck of George Floyd earlier that day was probably very kind and caring when uh, he was doing his job in the white community. So it's, it's not that they don't know how to be caring. You wrote in an essay that I read about testifying with a group of others about what could we do to improve policing and police relations between the Black population and cops on the ground. And you were alarmed to hear a well-meaning police chief in a Florida community describe how successful his department had been in his estimation, and they were serving sweet tea to members of the community. Yeah, that's right. You know, this was this idea that he was, he was very um, proud of that, and uh, I was— Shocked that he was so proud of that uh, idea that you could sort of bribe or 
lull the community into trusting the police without actually doing the work of maybe not engaging in brutality or not supporting mass incarceration, but just giving them ice cream to get their mind off of the, I mean, it's very paternalistic as you can, can imagine. But that, that, is the, that is the community policing philosophy. It's a philosophy that you can earn some style points through style over substance and thereby, you know, do the same things in substance that you've always been doing, but just change the style in such a way that, uh, you know, causes people not to have discomfort. That's what community policing is to me. Was there a time when you had hope for community policing where you thought, yeah, this could work? I don't think I did. Even, even, before, even before I studied these issues, I knew better. You know, I, I, I'll, be, I'll be honest. Even as a teenager, you know, I did not have a great deal of trust for a police officer who said that, you know, he was my friend and he wanted to play basketball with me. Uh, when he still has his gun on his, uh, on his waist. And I'll say this, even as a student in, you know, at the university, there were police officers who were friendly, but they were always capable of violence towards me in a way that other people were not interested in trying to control or have violent interactions with me as part of their job, you know? So it's it's their job to use, if not violence, the threat or a possibility of violence to control the behavior of people who are not willing to follow the laws. We, as a lawyer and a law professor, I know that there are laws that are good and make sense that should be followed, but there are also there are also laws that are not really worth anything. They're not worth anything. In, in Ferguson, remember, um, there's a law that was written about in the Ferguson report called the Manner of Walking Law, where you can be uh, ticketed and arrested because of your manner of walking, not walking uh, properly on the sidewalk or something. Those are the types of we call them quality of life, broken windows policing tactics and laws that uphold the broken windows policing philosophy. Those are the types of things that community policing upholds. You're listening to With Good Reason. We'll be right back with more from Justin Hansford. Welcome back to With Good Reason at Virginia Humanities. I'm speaking with Justin Hansford about the failures of community policing. He's a professor of law and director of the Thurgood Marshall Civil Rights Center at Howard University. Justin, remind me what broken windows policing is. I know it was used in New York City and was controversial. So there was a soci- some sociologists who wrote a report basically saying that you could eliminate crime in a city by creating an atmosphere where there were no broken windows. Put it in the other, from the other perspective, if there's, you know, an environment where there's graffiti, where windows are broken, where things are in disorder, there's more likely to be crime. The problem with, with what that did is it all empowered police officers to use their force, even deadly force, for minor crimes, which really aren't going to be crimes that hurt anyone. And so Eric Garner could be choked to death for selling a loose uh, cigarette for uh, chump change, basically. Uh, Mike Brown can be killed, you know, for, I guess, walking in the street. So that broken windows policing philosophy is what empowered police officers to take the lives of people over things that um, are worth uh, trifles. And that level of power is intoxicating for police. They haven't been willing to let that go ever since. You participated in the Ferguson protests. Six years later, when you see the protests that are underway now, very similar circumstances, has anything changed that gives you heart? Yeah, the protests that have taken place over the past few days give give me great heart. You know, that 
that the worst thing that could happen is to have an environment like this with, uh, you know, these types of videos being played and people not be willing to go to the streets as a result of that. Cause that would, just, that would show that they were complacent or they were even okay with, uh, people being choked to death over a $20 bill or a loose cigarette. And the fact that the, there's this human soul out there that is not okay with that and is willing to go to the streets and yell and protest over that is what gives me hope. And the fact that this that's happening all around the country, that just gives me even more hope. What about also the police chiefs and officers here and there who are taking a knee? I can see what you're asking. You're asking if I am, as a result of them taking a knee or something, is there some hope of feeling uh, some sympathy or warmth or or feeling like they're like the police officers themselves as individuals? are making some progress. It was never really about them as individuals. And most, a lot of the people who are police officers are fine family people who, who are just doing their jobs and who are happy to go home at night with their family. And, but they're in a job that is designed for a project of social, uh, you can say social control or you can say social oppression. Uh, but it's it's a it's a job designed not to serve and protect everybody in this society. It's a job that emerged from the worst parts of our history, and you know has continued until today to be the worst part of our society. For example, I I want to make this point. Think about racial profiling. The police do discriminate on the grounds of race. It's legal. There are very few places in society where you can say, well. I, I I did something to someone, you know, because of their race. You know, you can't say you fired someone because of their race. You can't keep someone from voting because of their race. But you can uh, decide that you are going to racially profile in America. And it's not illegal. Like You can't be sued for racially profiling. It's really the last bastion of racial hostility that is unquestioned in American society. That's why it's been infiltrated by so many people who are part of the white nationalist movement in America. I know you're based in Virginia, so Charlottesville is close to your mind. You know, there's been documented campaigns that many of those people who are part of the white supremacist movement were intentionally directed to infiltrating law enforcement for the training and for the opportunity to engage in um, aggression against African-American people, selectively targeting them uh, more so than other communities. So. It's hard to look at those types of dynamics and say, well, now you've taken a knee. So, you know, let's let's uh, let's let's just let it all go and, you know, just let you go back to how things were. You know, it's 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 a it's a system that is very, very much a, a racialized system of aggression in our society. And uh, no number of knees taken or no number of uh, sweet teas given <laughs> or other types of community policing, outreach projects. None of these things are going to, uh, when push come to shove, change the substance of what's happening. There have been calls in Minneapolis and in other cities for a defunding of police departments, a scaling back of the scope of activities in the scope of funding and militarization of police departments? Is that something you would embrace? That is something I would fully embrace. I would fully embrace that. Defunding efforts that were designed to take money directly from police budgets and put them into schools, put them into our health infrastructure. Uh, we have a society where there are not enough masks to go around, not enough you know, not enough machines to pe keep people breathing, uh, but there are tanks galore for stopping people from protesting and and police with guns and all manner of weapons that they rarely use. This idea that the police are the only way to keep ourselves safe is one that we've really got to get rid of. Justin Hansford is a professor of law 
and director of the Thurgood Marshall Civil Rights Center at Howard University. The work of artists and activists often overlap. Black Visions Collective and Reclaim the Block, the two organizations rallying to defund the Minneapolis Police Department, opened their June 3rd press conference with a poem. Activist, writer, and performance artist Janata Petrus Nassa read her poem, Could We Please Give the Police Departments to the Grandmothers? It's a piece she wrote in 2015, after Michael Brown, an 18-year-old black man, was fatally shot in Ferguson, Missouri, and the police officer who killed him was cleared of wrongdoing. It's called, Could We Please Give the Police Departments to the Grandmothers? Could we please give the police departments to the grandmothers? Give them the salaries and the pensions and the city vehicles, but make them a fleet of vintage Corvettes, Jaguars and Cadillacs with white leather interior, diamond in the back, sun rooftop, digging the scene with the gangsta lane. Let the cars be badass. You would hear the old school jams like Patti LaBelle, Anita Baker, and Al Green. You would hear sweet rock harmonizing on we who believe in freedom will not rest, bumping out the speakers, and they got the booming system. If you up to mischief, they will pick you up swiftly in their sweet ride and look at you until you catch shame and look down at your lap. She asks you if you are hungry, and you say yes, and of course you are. She got a crown of dreadlocks, and on the dashboard, you see brown faces like yours, shea-buttered and loved up. And there ain't no precincts, just love temples that got spaces to meditate and eat delicious food, mangoes, blueberries, nectarines, cornbreads, peas and rice, fried plantain, fufu yams, greens, okra, pecan pie, salad and lemonade. Things that make your mouth water and your soul arrive. All the hungry bellies know warmth. All the children expect love. The grandmas will help you with homework, practice yoga with you, and teach you how to make jambalaya and coconut cake from scratch. When you're sleepy, she will start humming and rub your back while you drift off. A song that she used to have the record of when she was your age. She remembers how it felt like to be you and be young and not know the world that good. Grandma is a sacred child herself, who just circle the sun enough times into the ripeness of her cronehood. She wants your life to be sweeter. When you wildin' out because your heart is broke or you don't have what you need, the grandmas take your hand and lead you to her gardens. You can lay down amongst the flowers, her grasses, roses, dahlias, irises, lilies, collards, kale, eggplants, blackberries. She wants you to know that you're safe and protected universal, limitless, sacred, sensual, divine, and free. Grandma is the original warrior, warrior, wild since birth, comfortable and loving fiercely. She has, fought to, she has fought so that you don't have to, not in the same ways at least. So give the police departments to the grandmas. They're fearless, classy, and actualized, blossomed from love. They wear what they want and they say what they please. Believe that. There wouldn't be noise citations when the grandmas ride through our streets blasting Stevie Wonder, Nina Simone, Marvin Gaye, Alice Coltrane, Jimi Hendrix, Karis One, all that good music. The kid's gonna hula hoop to it and sell her lemonade made from heirloom pink lemons and maple syrup. The car is solar powered and carbon footprintless. The grandmas design the technologies themselves. At night, they park the cars in a circle so all can sit in them with the sun roofs down and look at the stars, talk about astrological signs, what to plant tomorrow based on the moon's mood, and help you memorize Audre Lorde and James Baldwin quotes. She always looks you in the eye and acknowledges the light in you with no hesitation or fear, and grandma loves you fiercely forever. She sees the pain in our bravado, the confusion in our anger, the depth behind our coldness. Grandma knows what oppression has done to our souls and is going to change it one love temple at a time. She has no fear. Janata Petrus Nassa is an activist, writer, and performance artist. The poem she just read is Could We Please Give the Police Departments to the Grandmothers? 
Coming up next, a look at how slave patrols and 80 years of enforcing Jim Crow laws are precursors to our modern police departments. While the defund movement is a relatively recent phenomenon, the history of police in America dates back centuries. Connie Hassett Walker is a criminal justice professor at Norwich University. She says American policing has racist roots, which helps explain many of the issues still plaguing police departments today. Connie, you studied criminal justice in the United States and argue that the history of American policing is rooted in racism. How so? Well, the most commonly known narrative about the start of American policing is that that it stems from English policing with uh, Sir Robert Peel and that it started in the cities uh, beginning in Boston and by about 1880, all the major cities in the U.S. had a municipal police force. But there's another narrative that's not, it's not a secret, it's not just not discussed as much. And about 100 years before that, um, beginning in the Carolina colony, um, that's when you see the, um, the beginning of the slave patrols. And by the end of the 1700s, slave patrols were in about every slave state in the country. And their job was to protect the, the person, the personhood and the property of the slave owners And when slaves escaped, they would return them and they would patrol at night and they had the right to enter people's homes if they were believed to be sheltering an escaped slave. Tell me about the slave patrols. Were they generally sort of bounty hunters? Were they loners or would they go in packs? Were they sanctioned or were they um, vigilantes? They were uh, they were sanctioned and they were sort of the the forerunner of the um, of what we think of as policing, and they were they were understood that they had this function to do. They were men generally who worked in groups who um, provided a service to uphold the laws of the land, the, the slave codes. How do you connect the lines to policing after that? I mean, how did slave patrols become police departments or influence the formation later? The slave patrols went on until the end of the Civil War, and then we have the the formal end of slavery with the passage of the 13th Amendment. So then, uh, with the states that lost, they have an issue, right? How are they going to keep their economy going when it was dependent on free labor? So for a short period of time, you have the uh, the Black Codes, which were essentially to keep segregation in in place. Those were um, short-lived. They were ruled unconstitutional. But then you have the start of the Jim Crow laws. And now this is around the time that formal municipal police departments have begun to develop in the major cities, like I mentioned before, across the country. So you have more formal police in a form we might recognize more, but their, their job is to enforce the laws of the land. And the laws are the Jim Crow laws, which keep segregation in place. They dictate the rules of how African-Americans are supposed to interact in public with whites. It's the the separate facilities, what blacks can and can't do. They can't meet in public. They can't congregate. They have to address uh, white people in a certain way, separate water fountains, separate bathrooms, all that stuff. The job then of the police would have been to enforce those rules. And that went on until about 1965, which is almost my lifetime. And there's never, because there's no like centralized national police force to set the policy for all the police departments around the country, because policing is decentralized, meaning each city and town police department has its own kind of culture. It, it, no one really tells it what to do, not even really state police departments. Um, There was never a reckoning for what, you know, what happened. There was never kind of a, it just, people just kind of went on. So to me, what's happening now with the, it just doesn't seem very different from the Watts riots of 1965 and the protests then. It doesn't feel like we've come far enough. And to me, part of that is that we've just never, there's never been a reckoning. It's amazing to hear you say that for about 80 years, it was the job of the police to enforce the Jim Crow laws. It's a powerful realization to hear it put that way, because we said, Dear police officers, we want you to enforce racial laws. 
And then come 1965, we want you to stop cold. And you're right. Society doesn't have a way of, of turning the corner. Yeah. How do we, you know, if, how do you just stop doing that? It, you don't. And policing is, by nature, a conservative institution. It's uh, militaristic. It's chain of command, top down. Something, I, my nephew is a cop, and I, I've sort of seen some shifts in his personality from before versus after police training. What did you notice? Uh, he became, I think, more wary and more, there seems to be just my informal observation of the, the police I've known, both friends and family. Um, there's this sort of belief that I always have to be right in a situation. I just always have to be in charge. And that's a, that's a burden to feel like you always have to be in charge of every situation. But if that mindset kind of seeps into officers going through the process of becoming an officer, then who can tell them otherwise? Who can tell them what to do? Who can tell them to, you know, oh, well, you're just trying to make me be more touchy-feely, all this diversity stuff. It's not It's not an institution, and I'm not talking about individual officers. I mean, the institution as a whole doesn't lend itself to sort of feedback from outsiders and soul-searching. So that may be part of the issue. When you see the clashes between protesters and police, and when you read that or see that police officers are having things thrown at them or being injured, how do you make sense of whose side is right? Well, I understand the reasons behind the protests, and I understand many of the police support the protesters, the police, their job is to protect and serve. And they've been told to try to restore out order. And yeah, and they're putting themselves at risk by being out there. And they're afraid. And, and they're right to be afraid because it's it's scary and they're at risk. And they, they don't, no one goes out want, generally nobody goes out wanting to hurt citizens and protesters, but they know they may have to and they know they may get hurt. And I think there comes a point when, it almost doesn't, when it's a moment of violence, it almost doesn't matter who's right or wrong. It just has to, it has to stop at some point because we can't talk about what's going on. We can't try to find a constructive solution while there's battling going on in the streets. And I understand the reasons behind it because people are, and we're coming, you know, people have been cooped up for two plus months because of the pandemic and people are really fed up We've got to get past this particular point so we can begin to have a constructive conversation. about. I guess my, my reaction to it mostly when I see it is it just it makes me really sad. Have your own views on policing changed over time, do you think? As I got into the criminal justice field and got to know police, yeah, it's I have a more, I guess, a more nuanced view of it. I do think it's a very hard job. And most police... I think are good people and it's it's also a scary job and I was I was talking with um, a police officer I know and I said what what is going on when something like that happens with George Floyd and he said well fear huh. you know it's they're afraid the police are afraid they're going to get hurt and it's things are moving very fast and when you're afraid you don't make good decisions so I I, I feel like I know I don't it's hard to classify my opinion one way or the other, how it's changed, but I know more than I, than I used to. And I have, you know, great affection for police officers knowing some of them. And I think it's, I think it's a hard job. And I think it's hard to, if you're not a police officer, it's hard to, you can't really imagine what it's like. And I think a lot of people, myself included, feel hesitant to tell police what they should do because I, I, I don't know, I'm not a police officer, but if you look at the big picture, what's happening, there really does seem to be a problem. And the police have to be part of the solution. What do you think some of the solution might be? You do write something encouraging in that a lot of college students are majoring in criminal justice and plan to become law enforcement officers. And in the course of that, they frequently take diversity and criminal justice courses. So that's one thing. Right. I think there uh, there's not one solution that will fix it. Um, I think there's, it's sort of a multifaceted, multi-pronged approach. There should be, I think, acknowledgement of the origins of American policing with the slave patrols and the enforcement of Jim Crow laws, that those are still 
echoing today. There has to be a real commitment that there can't be another murder like this one. Um, there has to be continued hiring of more officers of color and women, including promotion into supervisory positions. Uh, officers should live in the communities where they police. I think that will help with you know feeling of connectedness, and these are my people and I have to protect them. There need to be consequences for bad behavior. And it would be good also if police unions took ownership of the issue. That would help. Those are just some suggestions. Um, it's just, but it's it's not one thing, and it's not gonna it's not gonna be smooth. I really, really hope that this is the beginning of a constructive conversation to actually f- address the issue because the the deaths that have happened before haven't quite got us there. Well, Connie Hassett Walker, thank you for talking with me, and with good reason. Thank you. Connie Hassett-Walker is a criminal justice professor at Norwich University. Major support for With Good Reason is provided by the law firm of McGuire Woods and by the University of Virginia Health System, using advanced cardiac imaging to better diagnose conditions before they become serious health issues, uvahealth.com. With Good Reason is produced in Charlottesville, by Virginia Humanities. Our production team is Allison Quantz, Matt Darrow, Allison Byrne, Lauren Francis, and Jamal Milner. Some of the music is by Blue Dot Sessions. For the podcast, go to withgoodreasonradio.org. I'm Sarah McConnell. Thanks for listening.